Usually when we think of discipline, we think of the Victorian age pretentiousness or the blood, sweat, and tears of a Navy SEAL battling it out through Hell Week. In this episode, I talk with Ryan Holiday about his latest book, Discipline is Destiny, where he proposes that discipline is not just for the super athletes and pious priests. Discipline can also be harnessed by anybody trying to drive themselves towards their goals. But most importantly, it liberates us from pleasure's tyranny. Here's a short bio before we get into the interview. When Ryan Holiday was 19 years old, he dropped out of college to apprentice under Robert Greene, author of The 48 Laws of Power. Mr. Holiday had a successful marketing career at American Apparel and went on to found a creative agency called Brass Check, which has advised clients like Google, Taser, and Complex, as well as many prominent best-selling authors. He's the author of 10 books, including The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, Conspiracy, and Stillness is the Key, which have sold more than 2 million copies in 30 languages and have a following among NFL coaches, world-class athletes, TV personalities, political leaders, and others around the world. Mr. Holiday spends much of his time on a ranch outside Austin, Texas, where he does his writing and work in between raising cattle, donkeys, and goats. And with that, I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is the Aiming for the Moon podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast and subscribe, as well as sharing around the episode. You can follow us at Aiming the Number 4 Moon on Instagram and Twitter, and now Facebook. You can also check out our website at aimingforthemoon.com to find links to our merch, my Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. For my other meanderings, go to taylorgbledsoe.com. And with that, thanks so much for listening. Hopefully you enjoy. Well, welcome, Mr. Holiday, to the interview. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. You definitely don't have to call me Mr. Holiday, but I'm excited. Well, then what should I call you if I can't call you Mr. Holiday? Uh, my name is Ryan. You can call me that. Okay, then fine. Let's just, let's just go with that. <laughs> All right. All right. So you wrote a book. Um, it's one of many books that you've written. And it's Discipline is Destiny is the latest one. It's coming out in September. Mm-hmm. And I read it before we got on this interview. It's I really enjoyed it. It was very interesting. You basically go through and give examples of great people and how they apply discipline and different types of discipline in their lives. Mm-hmm. So to begin, can you kind of talk about the three different types of discipline and self-control that you talk about? Yeah. So discipline is one of the four cardinal virtues, courage, temperance, justice, wisdom, discipline, and temperance are synonyms. But um, I try, I like to, for whatever reason, I like to break my books up into three-part structures. I've done this many times. And I was trying to think of the different types of discipline. So I think there's first, there's physical discipline. This is the discipline to get off the couch and go for a run. This is the discipline not to eat stuff that's bad for you. Uh, to work hard, to endure pain or struggle, um, to have good habits. Uh, so that, that's the first sort of domain of discipline. The second would be uh, spiritual or, or would be emotional discipline, you know, temperament, right? Uh, the ability to uh, keep your emotions in check, the uh, ability not to get provoked, the ability to focus, uh, all the sort of soft skills that you need to be great at something. And then I I end the book similarly to how I do uh, the prequel to this, which is about courage, courage is calling, that there's kind of a higher plane that fuses those two together. Um, I call this the magisterial, but that's, uh, you know, 
the courage. Uh, I, take someone like Martin Luther King, right? Martin Luther King is called horrible things. So you have to have a certain emotional discipline to not be provoked, to not hate someone that hates you. But then there's also the physical discipline of like, what do you do when someone is literally punching you? There's a, a famous uh, moment. Uh, Martin Luther King is is uh, is talking to a conference and a, a, a neo-Nazi walks on stage and begins to punch, physically attacks him. And everyone in the audience was shocked by, you know, here is this professed man of nonviolence being not not attacked in a demonstration or on the streets or by a police officer where the the he can sort of practice his his art more obviously he he's being phys- just out of the blue someone runs up and starts punching him in the head what does he do and 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 he's thousands of people are watching him and Martin Luther King to gasp in the audience sort of turns and faces the man and doesn't go like this. He drops his hands. He invites the attack in. And to me, that is just a supreme amount of self-discipline. Uh, it's a physical discipline to do the opposite of what your body would do, want to do, to, to do the opposite of what your emotions would want you to do, but spiritually to have so much discipline in what you believe and the cause you're fighting for and the statement you're trying to make, you can sort of bring all that together. So those are the three domains or the, the three... Uh, areas of discipline that I focus on in the book. And I'm trying to work you from the first to the last one. So why should we even take the time and take all of the work that it requires to discipline ourselves in these areas? What's the point? Like, what are we aiming for? Yeah, I, I think the Stokes would argue that although it might seem like it would be fun to be an ill-disciplined person, to just get away with whatever, to do whatever you want. In fact, nobody is having less fun than those people, right? If if you're not in charge of yourself, then someone is in charge of you, right? Or something is in charge of you. So when we talk about self-discipline, we, we're, we're saying, look, no one's saying this is the law. No one is saying um, that you have to do it. But if you don't do it, um, either there do have to be laws or more... Uh, common what happens like if you're not in control of your appetites let's say then your appetites are in control of you and eventually that ends in a not so good place so the idea of self-discipline is is the decision to be in charge of your own life and uh the older you get the more successful you get the less and less external guardrails there are suddenly you can wake up and do whatever you want um you can do anything you want no one can tell you what to do. In fact, people um, might be offering you all sorts of things or encouraging you to do all sorts of things. And you have to decide what you're going to do. You're going to have to decide who, really what the book is about. It's not just what are you going to do, but you're really deciding who you're going to be. And in the decisions you make and the things you do and don't do, in what you persist and resist, as Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher says, you are you are deciding who you are as a person. Why exactly is it so good to be in control of yourself? So, I mean, if I'm doing something and it's making me successful and it's and it's giving me pleasure, but it's kind of controls my life and it controls kind of who I am and I'm addicted to it, for instance, or something mm-hmm. like that. Is there, like, if everything seems to be going right with this addiction of mine, what, what's the point? Why should I even be in control of myself? Well, just because it's going well now doesn't mean that it's going to continue to go well. And so you often find 
that ill discipline can be rewarded in the short term. Ego is a great example of this, right? It takes a lot of work and discipline to keep your ego in check. So to decide to be humble, decide not to make it all about you, to decide not to get away with things that maybe you otherwise could get away with, um, you know, that takes work. And, you know, being egotistical, being self-absorbed, being self-centered, making everything about you, this might actually be good for you in the short term. Maybe it, it you ask for things you have no business asking for. Maybe it makes you famous because you're interesting and provocative and, and all these things. But eventually, ego always destroys itself. There's a great writer, Cyril Connolly, he said, uh, ego sucks us down like the law of gravity. I think this is ultimately what happens with all addictions, all forms of excess or ill-discipline. It can work for a time. It could even be adaptive for a time. But it inevitably, it ends in ruin because there's never enough, right? Uh, there's never enough. Uh, you never, you'll never get what you want. And eventually it sort of seeks its own annihilation, uh, tragically. I mean, I, I, it would be wonderful if, hey, it, this isn't what it took, but it is what it takes. You also talk about having a primary kind of goal in life and then cutting out the distractions around that. So, for example, for the podcast, I really want to make the podcast successful and have authors on like yourself and other things like that. So I cut out, maybe I limit social media, I limit time on mm -hmm. YouTube or something like that. How do you define a primary focus for yourself. So for example, I'm a student and all, yeah. all of my friends are students. We have little projects that we're working on, like my podcast. But at the same time, school has to be a major concern. Otherwise, the rest of our life doesn't go as planned. Yeah, sure. So yeah, how do you manage uh, the world, basically, and all the and all the possibilities like that? No, look, this is the perennial problem of all successful, talented people, which is that uh, to be great at something requires a lot of focus and a lot of time, a di a, an inherently disproportionate amount of time and focus. But if that's your only thing, um, you are out of balance and it often can undermine the very reason you were becoming successful. So how many people, I want to be an author, I want to be an actor, I want to start a company. And they they become good at that thing. And then they look around them and they realize they have no friends, that their spouse left them, that they have no relationship with their children, that they have that that by the way, this thing that they thought would bring them joy and satisfaction and self-worth, you know, it turns out it's just another thing, right? It's just, it's just another thing. And so you you ultimately realize that a lot of the life is about tension and balance. So for me, I want to be a great writer. And to be a to be a good writer, which I would say I am, it takes a lot of work and a lot of energy. But I also want to be a great father and a great spouse. And these things are in tension with each other. And I have to I have to figure out ways to balance them. And and if if you said, hey, you can be the best writer in the world, but the trade off there is divorce and estrangement from your children, that's not a trade I would make. Conversely, if you told me, hey. Uh, your marriage will be better. You'll have more fun, but you guys will travel all the time. You want to see your kids. I mean, what kind of relationship would that be, right? So it, there, there's there's a tension, but but ultimately you do have to make trade offs. You have to. What's your main thing, or what are your couple main things, like your big things, and then what are the inessential things that you eliminate uh, that distract from that thing? So at your age, look, school is obviously a main thing, and then this this. Uh, this craft that you're trying to master or pursue is is another main thing. I would I would argue that 
at least for a while, those things are probably actually more complementary than they are in conflict with each other. Because the more you learn at school, the better you'll be at, at your podcast. The more you go off and learn outside of school, the more you bring to your education, right? There's that distinction between school and education. And so um, th- that's a that's a, a trade-off. But ultimately, in, in, my, uh, in my career, I dropped out of college when my uh, opportunities as a writer, it start a writer and a researcher and some people I wanted to learn from when it became clear that sticking with school would actually limit my education in the thing that I really wanted to learn about. And that, that was an extremely difficult decision to make when I don't make lightly or advise people necessarily to make, but I always try to think about like, what am I going to learn most doing? And I try to go towards that thing. The thing about school, though, especially high school, is that there's always people looking over your shoulder saying, hey, make sure your GPA is up. Make sure you're going to do mm-hmm. all this stuff. Otherwise, your future life, you might not get into the college you want to do, but then you might not have the job you want to have or something like that. And it's very measurable, right? Like, so your GPA is a number and they can, or your grade is a letter and they can be like, it could be higher, it could be lower. But to get good at, at a lot of other things, not only is it a lot longer period than like a semester or a year or even a high school or a college, but it's how do you measure that you're getting better at it, right? How, there's no quantifiable evidence. It's some. It's more a feeling for a long period of time, and 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 uh, that can be really hard. Yeah, not only because other people can hold you accountable, um, but you you have you have the the evidence that it's working. And you know, I I started my first blog in 2006. And my first book came out the first time I ever made one penny from writing in the summer of 2012. So six years of writing almost every day for free to basically no one um, until I got any sort of proof like, hey, this is going in the right direction. So it takes a long time. Then how do you manage stuff like that? So you have going back to the school example, because that's obviously what I'm most familiar with. Um, Then you have people. So. I enjoy writing. I enjoy podcasting. And I think I'd love to pursue a career in writing and in podcasting. But then at the same time, I have teachers who want me to write essays, which is fine, obviously, for the GPA. And that enhances my further education. But also, it takes away time from careers and other opportunities that I want to have. So you have writing and and you have reading and writing due for school. But then at the same time, it's it's almost like you have to structure your time in such a way. Where it's, I'm, I always have trouble doing that. And I always ask people like yourself who are writers and thinkers about this. I mean, it, early on in your career or your life, I would just say like practice is practice, stage time is stage time. And like the fact that your teacher is giving you prompts, like like for, for a good chunk of those six years of a writer, I was writing press releases for companies I worked for and memos and like not things that were particularly satisfying to write but I was getting good at writing period. And then that became transferable to the kind of writing that I wanted to do. And so like what you really need as you're starting is reps, right? Like you need just opportunities to do the thing, but you, unless you know exactly where you're going to end up in your career, it's hard to know what kind of reps to get. So I think a, a a broader kind of reps, like just reps in different things, uh, is probably better off. Um, there's a really good book by David Epstein called Range, um, and his point that especially early on, specialization 
is probably not the right choice. It, it can be for some people, but you know, like I knew I, I, what I knew at first was that I wanted to be around writers and books. I didn't actually know that I wanted to be a writer per se. So like I did marketing for writers and I did advertising for writers. And I did all sorts of, I did research for writers. I did all these other things that showed me how the industry worked and how the mind worked. And I just learned a lot of stuff that as I eventually did specialize, those skills became valuable. Those reps transferred. But um, if I had chosen, if you had forced me at 17 to choose I might have made the wrong choice and then specialized in the wrong thing. It's always very interesting. For the record, Mr. Epstein is one of my favorite people. His book is incredible. He's great. We've talked to him before. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He it was it was awesome. He was one of He's my favorite best. people. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is when you get to discipline, it helps you do all of these things you want to do. It helps you excel sure. at school. It helps you excel at your goals. The question I always have is people say, okay, go be disciplined. Go, go, you know, go do it. But they're always like, okay, great. Wait, now, how do I do that? So what are some tips for practical discipline? Like when I get up in the morning, what should I do if I want to have a disciplined day or something like that? Yeah, I I do think about this a lot. I think about, I think about how do I set my day up to be most conducive to getting the best out of me, whatever it is that I'm happening to do. So to me, that means usually waking up early before distractions, before noise. That means setting some clear boundaries so I don't get sucked into social media, video games, the TV, you know, all the things that are, are going to eat up that amount of attention. Um, I try to get outside. I try to get active, do some form of walking or running or biking, something that gets me active in the morning. Um I, I I have a rule where I don't touch my phone early in the morning, uh, usually the first 30 minutes to an hour that I'm awake. Um, and then I tackle whatever my big task for the day is up front, which is something I talk about in the book. Do the hard thing first. Um, if you wait to get around to the hard thing till two in the afternoon, not only are you going to be not as fresh and not as excited or whatever it is, but the world will conspire with you to create reasons why you don't have to do that thing. Oh, now it's hot. You know, oh, now there's this fire over here, literally or figuratively, right? Now you're in a bad mood, right? Or you're you don't feel well. Um or this other thing happened, right? There's a million reasons. And so you have to tackle that stuff early. The things that require the most willpower you want to do at the beginning of the day when you have a fresh load of willpower, right? Um, so I think about starting the day off, right? Like this morning I got up early, I took my kids for a walk, came to the office and I did a chunk of the writing that I have to do today. Now my schedule for the day, because I'm putting out this book is not as much my own as I would like it to be. I have three different podcasts I have to record. So it's like three hours of a, you know, let's say eight ish hour day that it's not mine. Um, but the fact that I already got a, an early win means that if I am I'm able to come back to that thing, if I can add a little bit more here or there, pepper it in between breaks, then great. But like I already did most of what, you know, I already did the 80-20 of today. Yeah. So would you say that you structure your day in doing the most important and hardest things first? So then you you would have a list basically of hardest thing or most difficult thing and going down until you 
basically the least um, the thing that is the least hard you're doing at the time when you're most tired. Does I mean, uh, it's even even more than that. Like yesterday, I didn't even look at my to do list because like I just wrote. So like everything on my to do list was like important enough that I put it on my to do list, but not so important that I didn't need to put it on my to do list, if that makes sense. Like I know the main thing is that I have to be chipping away at this book that I'm writing. So I did that and I did that and that took up so much of the day, I didn't even get to the crap on the to-do list. And it mostly is crap. You know, it's like, I got to call this person. I got to send this. I got to, you know, I got to fill out this piece of paperwork. I got to make this scheduling change. I didn't even get to any of that because I was doing the hard, the important thing that there's a thing called the Eisenhower, uh, uh, what's it called? The Eisenhower priority matrix. And it's basically about urgent tasks versus important tasks. And very rarely is the urgent thing important. And very rarely is the important thing urgent. And you have to figure out what are the important, urgent tasks. And you have to tackle that. And if if every day you, you make progress there, you're going to be moving in the right direction. Conversely, you could have a day where you're extremely busy and you're doing nothing from dawn until dusk crossing items off your to-do list, but have made essentially no visible progress because none of the stuff you did actually moves the needle in any real way. So wrapping up here a little bit, what, these are the questions we ask all of our guests and all the people who come on for those who haven't listened before. Sure. What books have had an impact on you? Well, uh, when I was about your age, I read Robert Greene for the first time. I got a copy of The 48 Laws of Power, which was like a very eye-opening book. I probably, if I was doing it again, I would have read Mastery first, but that book didn't exist then. But Robert Greene's writing was was super influential to me, and he went on to be sort of a mentor and advisor of me. I was probably 19 when I read Mark Cerilius' Meditations, which uh, was a life-changing sort of eye-opening book for me. Um, so if I had to give two recommendations, it'd be anything from Robert Greene and then something from one of the Stoics next, either Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, Seneca's Letters uh, from a Stoic, uh, or the there's a translation of Epictetus called um, The Art of Living. I'd probably recommend one of those three to someone your age. I've been, so last year we actually did ancient literature and we read some of Seneca's Letters to the Stoic. And that was, I really enjoyed that. I probably, it almost sounded like a modern self-help book. But it yes. was just, it was really rich. I was surprised by how readable it was. Well, it's, you had this really brilliant guy writing a letter to his friend. So it's not, you know, Socrates, it's like this debate and you're like, what is happening? It's confusing. It's like reading Shakespeare or something, right? Or you read Aristotle, these other philosophers are trying to explain the universe. And what I love so much about Seneca is he's, a, he's just trying to talk to his friend about something his friend is going through and it makes it much more accessible that way. Yeah, Aristotle is very hard to read <laughs> from what I found. It's like very, yeah, after you think about it, you're like, oh, that, you know, that was very enlightening of you. But it's it's hard in the moment is what I found. A lot of these things also you'll find, and this is something Marx really talks about in meditations. He quotes, um, he quotes Heraclitus, he says, we never step in the same river twice, meaning that uh, even though the books stay the same, we change uh, at, at each time we read them. So um I reread The Great Gatsby uh, earlier this year, and I read that in high school. It's probably the first time I ever wrote anything that, like, I wrote an essay about it, and probably the first time I ever wrote anything and someone was like, wow, you're good at this. Um, And I probably read it six or seven times since then. You know, I read it in my early 20s, my late 20s, my early 30s, and then I just reread it. Um, And 
I found something that I'm using in the book that I'm writing now that I didn't notice the first five times that I read it. And so you do have to, you do have to be able to come back to the books and read them again and again, um, because what you need uh, from them changes. And so what you see in them changes. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. The Great Gatsby is another favorite of mine. It's it's very interesting with the style of narration the guy uses. Mm-hmm. Wrapping up with our last question, what advice do you have for teenagers? That's a good question. Um, obviously, read a lot, right? Uh, there's a great expression that you know any fool can learn by experience. You know, books are a way to learn by the experiences of others, uh, and so to read as much as you possibly can. Um, to ask people that you admire or you like, what books do you like? This is also a great way. Don't just read anything. Read, you know, the books that have shaped the people that you want to be like. Um, but I would also to advise them to do something similar to what you're doing. Like my life was changed by the fact that as a college student, I had a column in our college newspaper and I went around and I interviewed people. And that was the first time I got to actually meet and talk to people that were not like my parents and not like my teachers that were not regular at all. These were, you know, like well-known, uh, uh, you know, important people in their various fields. And that was totally life. I ended up working for some of them. I learned lessons from some of them. I'm friends with some of them now. Um, people want to help you when you're young, but they won't just help like some random person. You have to create a reason by which um, there's a really good book you might like by Judd Apatow called uh, Sick in the Head. And it was the fact it's 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 a, actually very old. It came out recently, but as a high school student, his high school had a radio station and he used it to interview comedians that he wanted to meet. Um, and and the the book is the transcripts of these interviews that this kid did when he was a kid. And now he's this movie producer. And now he went back and re-interviewed them. But his life was changed by these uh, interviews that he did, not unlike the podcast you're doing or the column I had. And so, you know, finding a way that you can put yourself out there uh, and meet people and ask questions is a, is a way to learn by the experiences of others. That's something that I've found through the podcast is like you said, a lot of people are willing to help young people, which like yourself, people who come on the podcast, and I, I'm not entirely sure why, I'm, it might be because they find it interesting or something like that. But it's always, I've learned a lot from talking to people like yourself and talking to other people, their research and then life experience, and then the life advice that they give. It's, it's always in, in very interesting. Everyone has a story is kind of what I found. It's been a very fascinating experience. Yeah, it's uh, you get a lot of requests as a, as a public person in whatever it is that you do, and they're all usually the same. And so when you have the opportunity to stand out, uh, you want to stand, you know, it breaks through in a way that's different. And so right now, you know, your thing breaks through. But when you're 25, you're going to be like every other 25 year old who's just trying to get a job or get help with something. And it changes. Like uh, when I was a student, people were really willing to help me. And then when I dropped out of college, I was just another person. And in some ways, I was the competition, right? And and that dried up. And so I was lucky that I took advantage of it while I could. And if I'd known how it was going to drive up, I dry up, I might have taken more advantage of it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is really cool.
Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully, all of you guys enjoyed it. If you liked it, please rate and subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at aimingthenumber4moon. If you go to our website, aimingforthemoon.com, you can find links to our merch, the Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. If you liked any of the books mentioned throughout this episode, go check them out through the links below. They help financially support the podcast if you use that link. And yeah, if you want to see any of my other meanderings, go to taylorglidso.com. And with that, again, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to set your sights high and aim for the moon.